trade secrets and confidential information. Welcome to another episode of Cartmel's In Conversation. I'm Jake Marshall, a partner in the IP Transactions team. In today's discussion, I'm joined by Chloe Taylor, who is a senior associate in my team, and by Mary Ford Weston, who is an associate in the dispute resolution team. Hello. Hello. Hi, Jake. So in this episode, we're here to talk about trade secrets and confidential information, how to protect them and what to do if they're misused. This is an area where our teams work together because there are often related issues of protection and enforcement. So, uh, Chloe, our listeners might be wondering what the difference is between confidential information and trade secrets. Could you first tell us what confidential information is? Yeah, so I think first, we're talking really about any kind of information that a business might have. So this could be a customer list, it could be a recipes, know-how, business plans, sales details, all sorts of things can be classed as confidential information. And so really in my mind you know any business is likely to have confidential information uh, in a minute we'll talk about or we'll hand over to mary rather to talk about what a trade secret is and it is possible i think for businesses not to have any tra- trade secrets but they might have confidential information and so confidential information under english law at least is something that has been protected by the common law here so case made judge made law rather than specific legislation and so we've had the definition of confidential information from case law from over 70 years ago in this case saltman versus campbell and that established that confidential information is really any information that has what's called a necessary quality of confidence and they go on because that in itself is not necessarily uh, particularly illustrative, particularly helpful. And they go on to say that it namely must not be something which is in the public property, public knowledge. So this is something which is not in public property and it's not public knowledge. And then since then, case law has has gone on to restate and add to that definition so that ultimately now we have this you know, three limb test, and we see love a three limb definition in English law uh, for what breach or misuse of confidential information would be. So, in addition to the information having this necessary quality of confidence, not being public property, uh, it also must be an information which was imparted in circumstances importing an obligation of confidence, and that an unauthorised use of the information has taken place to the detriment of the rights holder. And that idea of detriment, I think, is something that we'll pick up later. Uh, It's also perhaps worth saying that there are a number of different ways in which that obligation of confidence might arise. So imposed by contract, implied by the circumstances of the disclosure, or because there's a special relationship between the parties. And We'll, I think we'll pick up a bit about contracts, so particularly around things like non-disclosure agreements later in the later in the conversation and special relationship between the parties as typically employment relationships that we're talking about. But yeah, so that's confidential information. It's pretty broad and it's something that's definitely sort of common law uh, led. Thanks, Chloe. So uh, that's helpful. So how then, um, Mary, is a trade secret different? How is that 
not confidential information? Well, it's an interesting question. And in essence, trade secrets are a subset of confidential information um, and they can be seen as sort of extra confidential, confidential information. Um, but it can be quite hard to pin down sort of where that line between mere confidential information and something that a trade secret is. Uh, and traditionally, there, there hasn't really been a clear line between them. Um, but now uh, the trade secrets regulations are in force. They came into force in 2018 uh, and they implemented some European law. So the idea was that trade secrets protection be harmonised across Europe. Uh, and the trade secrets regulations do introduce a statutory definition of trade secrets uh, just to make things a little bit easier for us. Um, it too has three limbs. Um, and begins slightly tautologically uh, with the requirement that a trade secret uh, is something that is secret in the sense that it is not generally known. Um, so it's not known or accessible um, to people who operate within the circles that would normally deal with that type of information. Um, so it mustn't be public property or knowledge, again, similar to the, the requirement for confidential information. Um, it also has to have commercial value because it's secret. So it's not enough that it's just not known. There must be value in the fact that it is secret. Um, and that with it carries this requirement of detriment. Um, and it also must have been subject to reasonable steps under the circumstances by the person who controls the information to keep it a secret. Um, so it's been shared only in certain circumstances, only when the recipient of the information is under an obligation to keep it secret. It's funny, isn't it? Because I think you, like you were saying, there's not really a bright line. And you see that a lot in the case law that yeah. there are sometimes you know customer lists and that kind of information is the kind of classic one I think where in some cases it falls on the side of being a trade secret and in other cases it's just confidential information and when and why is is pretty um it's pretty difficult to tell uh, on a kind of, it's pretty difficult to pull out any kind of general rules I think that are really going to help clients distinguish between the two particularly when you're looking at that kind of inf business information there are other things perhaps which are a bit more certain and I know you're going to pick up one or two of those examples later on but for me it's always the you know the KFC herbs and spices is one of them <laughs> um I, and one thing that I find quite interesting about the bringing in of the trade secrets regulations was that at least as far as I was following it at one point there was that we weren't going to the, the English law wasn't going to bring them in at all as a legislation. There was an idea that we had enough in English law under the common law. But decisions were made, obviously, to change, to actually bring that in, bring those regulations in. And as you say, Mary, we've got this now, we've got a specific piece of legislation which gives us that definition of trade secret as opposed to us saying just we think it's a subset of confidential information which is not quite nice, I think. Yeah, I think it is helpful to have it have it codified. I mean, one thing that I picked up from there that perhaps is is a a specific requirement for a trade secret is uh, is is the mention of reasonable steps. Um, the fact that you have to take reasonable steps to protect it in order for it to qualify as a trade secret. So, what types of things should businesses be thinking about there, Chloe? What what practical things could they be putting in place with reasonable steps? I think the first thing for businesses. Uh, is really to try and understand what they have and what they what they can identify within their business as being confidential information that 
they might want to protect. I would say that that is a potentially quite onerous task. What we're talking about here is is a kind of audit of what everyone in the company has in terms of confidential information. And we were talk- mentioned right at the top some of the kinds of information that we're talking about, some of the kinds of things that typically fall into that. So to do with sales, to do with client lists, uh, information if, relating to how you implement inventions perhaps, all of those sorts of things. But once you've identified and as far as you can kind of defined what that information is, then it's time to work out how you're protecting that information. And that can be through a range of different things. Some of the things that people talk about in the case law particularly are things like having, knowing who has access to it and keeping that on a kind of need-to-know basis. So you have to have some idea of how you're controlling access. Again, keeping logs, that kind of inf- that kind of thing. And beyond that, security measures. So that could be physical security if we're talking about paper copies, keeping things in locked filing cabinets, that kind of thing. I appreciate now that feels less and less like a realistic or likely thing to be for people to be doing, but it's still there, it's still possible and still potentially important. Uh, particularly when you're talking about those secrets that go back a few generations like you know, the Coca-Cola recipe is always the classic one that people talk about. Um, you're also also wondering, worrying about data security. And so ensuring that there's encryption if there needs to be. There is things like password protection on particular files. And that there are protocols for monitoring and updating those passwords and knowing who they've been handed out to and how they're used. There's quite a lot of training that goes with that. So those reasonable steps, knowing what you've got, knowing how how people are able to use it and keeping control of it as far as you can, some of the steps that we'd be looking at people taking. Okay, thanks, Chloe. So, uh, Mary, why might a business choose to rely on trade secrets and confidentiality then rather than on more traditional IP rights like patents or design rights? I think on the face of it, relying on trade secrets and confidentiality from what Chloe's explained about how it can be quite onerous to keep track um, of all of them uh, can have some challenges and there can be disadvantages of relying on trade secrets. So, for example, Uh, They can't protect you against reverse engineering. If another party could uh, reach the same conclusion by reverse engineering, for example, um, there's no protection there in the way that a patent might provide protection. Um, But that said, there are some definite advantages. Uh, So because there are no formalities, they come into existence as soon as they're created uh, and they're not time limited. So they can potentially be kept secret indefinitely. So as Chloe mentioned, the Coca-Cola recipe that's been a secret since the 19th century, um, that has huge value to it. Whereas obviously with a patent, um, the monopoly is limited to 20 years. Uh, They can also be really useful during the R&D phase. So before a business is ready to file for a patent, 
um, it's possible to keep things secret that way and obviously very important to do so. And sometimes they can also be used to protect things that can't be protected with more conventional IP rights. So, for example, know-how, um, customer lists um, and that type of thing. So there are certainly you know, reasons that it's very useful to have track of your trade secrets and use them. Excellent. So how about then in the, on the more practical side of things, can you give us some examples of situations um, that have come up in your day-to-day role um, that involve trade secrets or confidential information? Um, how about you first, Chloe? Yeah, there are a number of different situations that we see. I think one of the main ones that we often see is when companies are looking to enter into potential collaborations with other companies. And so they're aware that they're going to need to divulge know-how or confidential information to each other in order to progress a particular project. And when when they're doing that, there are a, no, there are also just a number of different ways in which confidential information can raise, raise its head in that scenario because you potentially have both parties putting in confidential information of their own in order to work together and then there may well also be kind of resulting confidential information which comes out of that collaboration. So there's kind of a number of different things that people are worried about. One, going in and then coming out. And so when they're in the, going into the, into the collaboration, it's often a really key time to use something like a non-disclosure agreement, which frames how the parties are going to be disclosing information to each other, what they're, why they're doing it, what they consider to be confidential in this scenario, and then sort of give, the, give them each some limits around who they're able to divulge that information to and why. We'd also tend to see that, com- that kind of resulting confidential information conversation happen when we're looking at collaboration agreements, for example, and who's actually going to own or hold or be able to use that information going forward. Yeah, I think NDAs are one of those things that come up time and time again, and they're often talked about as being a little bit limited because people may or may not always look to enforce them. They're really useful in scene setting. I would say in this type of situation where you're establishing a relationship with a different company, you don't really know each other yet. That's kind of it's kind of there as a kind of trust building or trust enabling mechanism in a way. But you're also thinking about how you disclose confidential information in a kind of onion way. So layer by layer, little by little, rather than giving out everything altogether. And people often talk about that from the disclosure's perspective, so that they're not giving away all of their confidential information. But it, it is also important, and this is these are conversations we've had with clients over the past couple of years about how they, as companies who receive confidential information, don't necessarily always want to receive that confidential information because they then have to worry about how they track it and how they keep control of it. The other thing that comes up a lot in case law, but personally is is less of an issue in in my day-to-day role, is concern around employees leaving companies and sort of taking customer lists with them and that kind of thing. And there are cases almost every year, I think, on some kind of fact pattern in which a salesperson has left the business, taken a 
taken a client list and set up a rival business. And you see that again and again, just with enough difference, perhaps in the fact pattern that people don't quite know what's going to happen and so think it's worth taking to court. That can be quite interesting um, in the sense that those cases often turn on really specific facts. But there's one about five years ago now, um, it's a 2017 case anyway, that uh, was quite interesting in the sense that the claimant had this substantial damaging damages claim saying that their ex-employee had stolen all of this confidential information and they should be able to get this massive damages claim. But the judge in the end just awarded them a £2 damages claim, damages sum. And so this is Marathon Asset Management versus Seddon for those who are keen to look it up in more detail. But it was one of these cases in which it was quite clear that these two ex-employees had stolen a whole bunch of information from their ex-employer that part was was easy that part was established uh, but and it and it was established that they were confidential files but what wasn't clear was whether these defendants had actually made any use of the confidential information and so ultimately the judge found that they hadn't made any use of the confidential information so without any misuse there was no detriment to the claimant just because something has been stolen doesn't necessarily automatically mean there's also a, cl- a damages claim there, which is kind of interesting, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, thanks, Chloe. How about um, Mary from the dispute resolution point of view? Yeah, well, it's interesting um, what you were saying, Chloe, about the problems for a company of receiving confidential information. Uh, and we actually had quite an interesting query a while ago from a client Um where they were looking at an acquisition, but a potential breach of confidence in the past had given rise to a question of whether um, the company they were looking to acquire was actually entitled to a patent they'd filed for. Um, So if a patent is filed for by somebody who isn't entitled to it, perhaps because that uh, patent is based on information obtained through misuse of a trade secret or confidential information, um, then there could be a situation where an entitlement action is brought and the patent it could be transferred to a different owner. Thanks, Mary. And I mean, so far, we've talked a lot about how you protect your own confidential information and trade secrets. And we have touched upon perhaps um, being accused of misusing somebody else's information. And on that, and this isn't something that is is often written about, but it, it can be as serious for a company to be on the receiving end of a, a breach of confidence or misuse of confidential information claim as it can be to perhaps lose some of their own confidential information. So what practical things um, could companies do to uh, reduce the risk of being accused of misusing somebody else's confidential information? Yeah, I mean, this is pretty tricky for companies to deal with, I think, particularly if they are not already cautious about how they deal with confidential information. Because if you don't know exactly what's coming in, it's very difficult for you to then defend yourself later on if people claim that you've used, misused confidential information. And so there's there's that. That idea of having an audit, having a log remains pretty important uh, so that you can show how you became aware of confidential information, who had access and that kind of thing of, of what it was used for, if it was used at all, 
in order to be able to demonstrate, for example, that you receive the same information from multiple sources or that a development team came up, happened to come up with the same idea independently as was covered by this confidential information. And yeah, those kinds of complaints do come up and occasionally they make their way to the courts or into the media, the court of public opinion, as it were. And so there was there was a case, there was a, there was a spat, perhaps it's more accurate to say, rather than a case last year in which John Lewis, uh, which for those of our listeners outside the UK is one of the major department stores here, and they had to defend themselves from an allegation of kind of misuse of confidential information in relation to the music in its Christmas ad. And yeah, I mean, the John Lewis Christmas ad has become something of a national institution over the years and people get quite excited about it and it devo- and it definitely gets quite a lot of uh, press coverage, um, whether good or bad, every year. And this past year was no, no exception to that. They'd used this piece of music which is a cover of Together in Electric Dreams, a Phil Oakley and Giorgio Moroder song. And the cover style that they'd chosen was this kind of quite folky uh, rendition. And there was a, an alt-folk duo called The Portraits who claimed that they had sent John Lewis uh, this idea of potential recording way earlier in 2021 uh, to use exactly this song in a very similar way to what was ultimately done. And that could well have been quite a tricky situation, I think, to deal with if you don't have really quite, um, you know, quite robust systems in place to set to know who received that communication and what happened to it Uh, and in this case you know in this case John Lewis were able to say yes that was received by someone in our marketing team Uh, it was received by someone in fact who left the company before the decisions about what music to use in the Christmas ad were made and that person had no involvement in those decisions and the email wasn't spread any further. So it couldn't, there was no kind of infection. But it's those kinds of level of information that, that people need to be thinking about, whether that's kind of logging receipt of information, keeping things in a walled off part of your IT system, if you can. We keep talking about audits and logs, um, training for employees to, so that they know how to use confidential information that they've received. Um, and ultimately, you might say that actually you're just going to delete unsolicited material so that you don't have to worry about it. Then Mary was talking about a situation that came up in context of an acquisition. And that's, again, something that we see quite a lot of in our clients who work in particularly in life sciences, but but other acquisitive areas as well, where you you're acquiring information in that context of data rooms and learning lots of things about a company but you may also independently be doing development work around a similar area and in that context there's quite a few elements to think about in terms of how you structure your data room so 
who has access to them? Um, what can people do? So, for example, can they print information from that data room? Can they share it with anyone? And then ultimately, if you are doing kind of development that's quite similar to the work that you're looking to acquire, if you've got the capacity and the team members, I think it, it, it's always worth thinking about, can you separate out those responsibilities so that you've got the idea of a kind of clean team? So a team of people who are doing the development, who are completely disconnected from those looking at the incoming confidential information. So yeah, a few different things I think that people can do. So then on to the enforcement side, what, what can you do, Mary, if, uh, if you discover that your trade secret has been stolen? Um, well, interestingly, actually, under English law, it's not possible to steal a trade secret um, because of the elements of the law of theft. Uh, so in order to steal something, there has to be uh, on the part of the, the thief uh, an intention to permanently deprive uh, the person who they're stealing from. Um, and so because you can't deprive someone of a secret, there's actually no criminal course of action in the UK uh, for misuse of trade secrets. Um, but it is possible to bring civil claims uh, in common law under the, the law of confidence uh, and also under statute under the trade secret regulations, as well as relying on a contract uh, like an NDA that was in place uh, at the time that the, the secret was misused. Um, obviously, it is preferable to avoid litigation um, through sort of some of the steps that Chloe's described, but on occasion that is unavoidable. Um, and generally, uh, the party who holds the trade secret will have six years to take action to protect their trade secret. So generally, there are time limits on the period of time that um, a party can take action for misuse of its trade secrets. Uh, and we go into that sort of fiddly bits of law a bit more in an article that will be published on our website soon. Okay, so let's assume that you, you meet those, those deadlines. What kind of remedies are available to, uh, to you once you've decided to take action? Well, there are lots of remedies that are available. Uh, so the regulations provide for a number of measures, um, but the common law remedies are also available. Um, so for example, an injunction to prohibit or stop the use of disclosure, uh, the use or disclosure of the trade secret. Um, but there can also be a prohibition on the production and sale of goods that make use of the trade secret, uh, recall from the market, destruction or delivery up of any goods that make use of the trade secret and also destruction or delivery up of files or computers that contain the trade secret. Uh, so it's similar to what you might see awarded in other IP infringement claims. Um, there can also be damages in respect of lost profits or an account of profits on the part of the infringer um, or damages can be assessed on a royalty basis if, for example, the party that held the trade secret uh, had instead given a license to use know-how. So uh, lots of options. Um, there is a question around what happens in cases where there's been a past use of confidential information that's been discovered later. So where to some extent the harm's already been done um, and it's not clear whether it would at that point be proportionate to grant an injunction. So in these cases, the courts have suggested that sometimes damages will be preferable to granting an injunction. Uh, so this came up in a case called Vestergaard, Franston and Bestnet, uh, which was about the use of confidential information, again, in this familiar situation where employees had left to set up a rival company um, for the manufacture of insecticidal mosquito nets. 
Um, so in this case, confidential information had been used in the development of a new product. Uh, so in that case, uh, Mr. Justice Arnold, as he, he then was, um, considered the role of springboard injunctions. Uh, so these are a type of injunction that's time limited and their purpose is essentially to cancel out any unlawful head start that might be gained from the misuse of confidential information. Um, but in certain cases, it will be decided that it's more appropriate just to issue um, damages because an injunction at that point wouldn't be proportionate. Great. Thanks very much, Mary. Um, so unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Um, I appreciate there's quite a lot to uh, to get your head around there. So if you do have any questions, please do get in touch. All of our contact details are available on the Cartmouse website. Um, I hope you've enjoyed the discussion as much as I have. And, and as ever, thank you for joining us. We look forward to welcoming you back um, in the future for another episode of Cartmouse in Conversation very soon.